Good morning, everybody. You can have a seat. Would you do me a favor? We are swamped all the way down Marshall Road. I know adults don't like it. Would you scoot into the middle? Just scoot into the middle if you can, so we can use your aisle seats for people who are standing only. And I'll make you a promise. If you'll do this every weekend, we'll enlarge the parking lot. We'll make it bigger. But I want to see you before Christmas. Well, happy, happy Easter, everybody. What a great weekend. Friday night, good Friday service was packed and awesome. And I want to thank the worship team, the band, the choir for knocking it out Friday, Saturday, and twice on Sunday. And I'm going to give every one of you a foot massage. Yeah. They really paid the price to practice, to be here, and I appreciate everybody's sacrifice and service so it can be a wonderful and a, and a great day. You know, I remind everybody I did it Good Friday night. The empty tomb is the only tourist attraction where people line up to see nothing. Isn't it great? He's risen. I love that. I love that. Well, here we go. I would like to destroy religion in just about 17 minutes to exalt Christianity, all right? So hang on. If you were going to study economics and master it to know anything about it, there are two basic fundamentals you would have to know and master. The law of supply and demand, right? Everybody knows that. You don't have to be a Christian to know. If there's a little bit of supply, a big demand, price goes up. If there's, a, if there's a big supply and a small demand, price drops, just like gasoline and oil did in recent months. If you were going to master aviation and study aeronautics, you would have to understand the basic laws of lift and drag. That would be fundamental to aviation. If you took a course in basic Christianity and you didn't know very much about it, then you'd have to learn a foundation premise that probably is not well known in the church, but I hope I can do a good job of making it real simple. It's found in Hebrews 9 verse 11, and it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It doesn't say without smoking, without body piercing, without adultery, without having done drugs, there's no forgiveness of sin. No. He says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. In a moral economy, there's a holy God that presides over His creation. And when men and women disobey that God, and come to Him to seek His forgiveness, forgiveness can be granted, ah, but at a price. A holy God can't just wave a wand and wink at disobedience any more than an honest judge in our city can't release somebody who's committed a crime. If a crime has been committed in our city, somebody has to pay for that crime. Sometimes that fine is paid monetarily. I've had a few of those with speeding tickets. Sometimes it's a prison term. But if there's any sense of justice in the universe, it comes from the character of a holy God who insists 
that justice must be served if forgiveness is going to be granted, but it will come at the price of the shedding of blood. So the entire Christian faith is predicated on that basic law or axiom. So I'm going to pretend I'm teaching a course on basic Christianity, and I want to pretend like you're here for the first time asking, what's it all about? How can I get forgiven? Tell me about the shedding of blood and how that fits in. And I hope by the time you leave, you'll be convinced that this not only will affect your life here and now on good planet Earth, but for your entire eternity. Now, the Bible teaches without apology that in spite of a culture that says the only thing important is here and now, the Bible teaches you'll live in eternity longer than you live on earth. So he urges us to prepare and plan and make sure we end up in the right place in eternity. But all that hinges on our understanding and application of how we gain forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So here goes our little trip, all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the first book in the Bible. It says God created everything, and then God created Adam and Eve. He put them in a beautiful, sinless environment. He gave them meaningful responsibilities to do. They enjoyed a relationship with each other and a relationship with God. God allowed man to exercise free will, choice. He told Adam and his wife, hey, there's a tree in the middle of the garden among all the other trees. You're free to eat of all the trees except the one in the center, the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, in the day you eat that tree, the day you rebel against me and what I'm asking you to do, you shall surely die. There will be consequences for disobedience. So he says, now you can choose to obey me or choose to disobey me. You can go your own way. It's your choice. Now, Adam and Eve probably had no forethought to disobey God, but they got deceived. Eve took the fruit. She ate it. She gave to her passive, compliant, wussy husband, Adam, and he also ate. Amazing. He didn't say a word. And an amazing thing happened after that. They felt a feeling they'd never felt before, and I'm sure everybody in this room has felt it as well. It's a feeling of guilt, that immediate negative sensation that tells you what you have just done is totally wrong, which is why when I got a speeding ticket, I did not argue with the officer. I knew I was wrong. I didn't need a civil defense attorney. I was guilty. And it's amazing because I said I was guilty, he let me go. I was, I was about as close to Christianity as I know you could get. And then you say, why did I do that? I know that was wrong. Well, they had these feelings born out of the fact that when they looked at each other, they're now embarrassed for the first time. I mean, something was going on. Something now was unnatural about being naked that was not unnatural before they sinned. Now they're embarrassed and shame-filled. In addition to that, they don't look forward to the presence of God coming. They're afraid for the first time. They hide in the bushes. They hope God doesn't show up. They're now embarrassed in front of each other. They're separated and detached from God. The Bible says Adam and his wife sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, and men are still doing it. We cover it with self-righteousness, moral behavior. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't run with girls that do. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. We gave to the charity. We supported United Way. 
fig leaves, fig leaves, trying to make myself acceptable before a holy God. And so they hide behind a bush, embarrassed and shame-filled when the presence of God came that day. Oh, man, and God spoke, Adam, where are you? That wasn't for information, folks. God knew where Adam was, and He knows where you are, but He was asking Adam, do you know where you are now? What are you doing hiding behind a bush? Why are you hiding from me? Uh, You didn't eat from that tree, did you? Did you? It's like talking to a three-year-old. And before Adam admits that he did, Adam says, oh, the great courageous Adam, God, the woman you gave me. I was doing just fine till she showed up. Everything was going along really good, but no, you had to get involved. You, you had to make her. You had to bring her here. Uh, it's your fault. That's what he's saying. And I thought, you know, in 2,000 years, not much has changed, has it? She made me. Then God asked Eve. She said, I was deceived by the serpent. I didn't want to, but I got tricked into it. So here's what happens in Genesis 3, verse 21. God made them skins to cover their nakedness. Now picture, if you can, Adam and Eve have never seen death. They've never seen bloodshed. There has never been sin. They've never seen agony, pain, or anguish. And if God made them clothes of skins, where did God get those skins? He killed an innocent animal. Can you imagine that for Adam and Eve, first time to see God slaughter an innocent third party, an animal that didn't do anything wrong, and the blood spilled all over the ground, and Adam and Eve are gasping, they've never seen this, an animal kicking around, dying, and the blood soaking into the ground. And they're thinking, God, we're the guilty parties here. Why are you killing this innocent animal? And I'm sure it flashed into their brain what God had said to them earlier, in the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But God was giving them and us a foreshadowing, a preview of something that was going to occur that was marvelous, that was going to happen in future history. But for that moment, it was like God was saying, there's going to be a death in this garden now. There will be the death of an innocent third party. The blood of an innocent third party is going to flow so the guilty can go free. And the guilty will go free because of the bloodshed of an innocent third party. Now, that's just a taste of a theme that runs all through the Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. A price must be paid. It must be paid not in good works, but in blood. Now, jump ahead a few hundred years to Egypt. Israel's in bondage. Moses, the prince of Egypt, is going to lead them out of Egypt into freedom. It's called the Exodus. To get Egypt to release Israel, God sends nine plagues on Egypt. Finally, in Exodus 11, He said, I'm going to send the tenth and final plague. It will be a death angel throughout all of Egypt to every home and every firstborn. They will die. Judgment is coming. But in Exodus chapter 12, God tells Israel, if you will take an innocent, unblemished male lamb out of your herd and kill it, and take the blood of that lamb and paint the doorpost of your homes with it, then when the angel of death comes to bring judgment on your house, when he sees the blood on your doorpost, he will pass over the house. 
He will know judgment has already occurred. Death has occurred. Blood has been shed. Has it ever occurred to you that he wasn't looking for morality? That he wasn't looking for good deeds? That he wasn't looking for Democrat or Republican? That he wasn't looking for African-American, Asian, Caucasian, Italian? He wasn't looking for nationality or gender. He was looking for one thing, blood. Blood. Judgment had occurred on that house. Blood has been shed. Therefore, I can't judge it. I pass over. When God passes over a believer, it is not because you're better than anybody in the world. It is because the blood of Jesus has been shed for you. That's it. You're as guilty as anybody in the world, and so am I. And these Israelites were just as sinful and just as guilty as any Egyptian ever was. So even though the people in that house have been disobedient, have also committed sins, the angel says, when I see the blood, I will pass over the house. Not when I see your crucifix, not when I see a statue of the Virgin Mary or one of the saints, when I see the blood of Jesus. So Moses tells Israel, if you want to be spread, uh, spared from the death angel, if you want your firstborn child to live, put the blood of an innocent third-party lamb on your house. It's your firstborn's life or the death of an innocent third-party lamb. You choose. Now, can you imagine a 15-year-old kid, maybe the son, going to the back of the tent with his dad, and he sees dad about to ready to snatch out the prize lamb of the herd and slaughter it? And he says, Dad, what are you doing? And the dad explains, I'm going to slay this unblemished lamb and paint its blood on our doorpost. But dad, have you flipped out? Why? What did the lamb do? Why should we kill the lamb? And the father said, it's God's requirement. If our sins are going to be forgiven, if we're going to escape judgment, it will be by the shed blood of an innocent lamb. So dad slaughters the lamb. The son doesn't want to watch. It's awful. The little lamb that's innocent is bleeding in agony as its blood flows and is killed. And the father paints the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of his home. And it says in Exodus 12, verse 29, that at midnight, the angel of death did come and went throughout all the land and visited death on every home except for the homes that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Did you know that if an Egyptian had put that blood on their doorpost, death angel would have passed right over. He wasn't looking for Egyptian Hebrew. He was looking for blood, blood, blood. This is not a racial thing. This is an obedient faith thing. Blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Now, the Israelite people were just as guilty as Egyptians were, but the guilty went free that night. They escaped judgment because of the blood of an innocent lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, no escape from judgment. Now go forward again. We've gone to Genesis, now the Exodus. Now from the Passover, you see throughout all the Old Testament, the mosaic sacrificial system. Animals are being killed every day, left and right, for the sin of the people. God wanted us to get the idea in our mind that forgiveness can be granted, but only at the cost of the shedding of blood. 
Then around 800 B.C., the prophet Isaiah announces something mind-blowing to the people who heard it. This is Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself will bear, our sorrow he will carry. He will be pierced through for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities like a lamb led to the slaughter. He will render himself a guilt or sin offering. I hope you can catch the significance here. Here's a culture for 1,500 years that has become accustomed to shedding the blood of innocent animals for sin. And now, Isaiah says, there is going to come a human sacrifice someday. Someday the blood shed for the forgiveness of sin won't be an animal. It's going to be a person, an innocent person instead of an innocent animal. And it left the people, as you can imagine, confused for a little bit. Now we come all the way down to the New Testament to John the Baptist. We've made a long journey. And you see this red line, this crimson thread going all through the Bible. John the Baptist is out proclaiming that the day of Messiah is at hand. God's provision for the forgiveness of sin is now just around the corner. And one day, John is out baptizing in the Jordan River. He wasn't sprinkling. He was immersing, okay? John 1, verse 29, he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, meaning all those four-legged lambs for generations were only a picture of the two-legged lamb, the Son of God, that would come one day. And instead of my sins being covered for a day they would be taken away forever. So that Hebrews says there remains no more sacrifice for sin. I was watching some folks in the Philippines, very sincere, crucifying themselves. I've watched others crawl, beating themselves with these phylacteries and whips to get blood flowing. I watched others climb stairs and bleed from the knee of monasteries. Why? There remains no more sacrifice for sin. Well, I'll put ashes on my forehead and I, I'll give up something for Lent. Then go right back to it at the end. What, what the heck? What are you talking about? Did you th suddenly thought that made you righteous? You're made righteous through the blood of Jesus, not through anything you do. And it's finished. And he says, sorry, no more sacrifice for sin. You're working yourself to death. And boy, Christians do it all the time. Behold the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. And when He does, He says, I will remember your sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, and if you go east, you'll never get west. He chose that directly in the natural to, to say that I will never remember your sin again. It's been atoned for once and for all. Now, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. They covered sin. But Jesus takes away the sin forever. There is no record. I'm sorry. You can go ahead and sub subpoena my records. You say, well, I find no transgression here. Yeah. Tell my wife that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that great? Why? It's been, it's been deleted from the cloud, the iCloud. You won't find it. It's gone. Jesus took it away. Now, Jesus knew He was the Lamb of God. Jesus knew why He came. He came to be a sin sacrifice. 
He said on the cross, he says, hey, no man takes my life. I'm going to lay it down. I give it willingly. Nobody, I can call 12 legions of angels. I can snuff you out and blink and you're dead. I'm giving my life free will for the sins of this world. No man's taking my life from me. Now think about it. So he comes to be the innocent human divine sacrifice, the Son of God. And Jesus began teaching. He would give his life a ransom for the world, that he would lay down his life, that he would shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we know from Scripture that Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's no record of him having committed any sin. He told his disciples he was that innocent Lamb, the Son of God, and that he would be crucified and killed. Finally, he's arrested on false charges. He's pronounced guilty by Pilate, who had earlier said, I find no sin in him. But to appease the Pharisees and Sadducees, he let an innocent man die. And Jesus is brought out on a hill. They lay him down on a cross. They pound nails into his hands and feet, and the blood of an innocent lamb starts to flow. By the way, I know you look at artist renderings, but a cross was not 20 feet high. Jesus was not in the stratosphere on these crosses. All they had was a tree. King James translates that cross, but the Greek language, it's tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So they chop the tree down, drive spikes into it to hold it together. It was not a beautiful, varnished piece of artwork that you see by people. It was nasty, rough timber, a tree that's just been cut down, nailed together, thrown the body on, and they only had the feet six inches off the ground. Now, because I made the deadly mistake to read my Bible, I become dangerous to Christianity. How can you spit in the face and slap the face and mock somebody 20 feet in the air? You cannot. They put them right there so people could taunt them as they suffered, as criminals guilty for whatever transgression it was. It was a horrible execution. That hurt, actually. I slapped my face. (laughs) I didn't want to say thanks. I needed that. That hurt. So from the Garden of Eden, it was foretold this day would come. And I can imagine, like you, that all the saints in heaven and all the angels are looking in horror, saying, how, God, how can God kill His own Son? An innocent, sinless Son of God to be slaughtered so guilty people can go free. If you ever doubt you're valuable, if you ever doubt how God feels about you on your worst day, why would a sinless God die for you? He loves you. You're valuable. You're important to Him. He didn't die for nice people or people who were almost nice. He died for the outcast, for the wicked, and people who deserved judgment. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's stripped and naked, and no, He didn't have a loincloth on because shame had to be exposed. So He was exposed, as were the other guilty criminals. I understand we cover them up as artists because of pornography, but please understand, He was naked. He didn't have a pair of shorts on. He was naked and bloody. It was a mess to look at. And so everybody's jeering him, spitting at him, mocking him. Even one of the criminals by his side mocks him. And Jesus hangs, and the blood is flowing, and it flows, and it flows, and it flows. 
And finally, with a loud voice, all the gospel writers record his last words were not whimpered, but shouted with a loud voice, it is finished. In the Greek, it's the word tetelestai, and it's this, it wasn't a strange word or a religious word. Everybody that did business knew exactly what it meant. If you were suddenly to receive your loan documents back and you had made the last payment on them, they would be stamped, paid, paid in full. There remains no more debt to pay, to tell us that. So if you paid off a loan, if you paid for something, or you finished an, a, a painting of some kind, or with a merchant, and he was satisfied, he would stamp it paid in full. It is finished, to tell us that. Jesus cried out, the price of sin and the redemption of humans has now been paid in full. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. Now listen, this is not meant to be ugly. This is meant to make you think. Because very sincere people, let's face it, very sincere people are deluded. But St. Paul went out of his way to say, who hath bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, that you can be perfected by what you do in the flesh, having begun in the Spirit. They had accepted Jesus. They had accepted His mercy, forgiveness, grace, and eternal life as a gift of God by faith. But now they're back under law. Now they're observing the Sabbath. Now they're observing food laws. Now they're observing all kinds of, of, of sacred holidays. And Paul said, who hath bewitched you? You're not made righteous by that. You, not, if you want to celebrate a certain day, you can, but it won't make you righteous. So we have people who celebrate this Sabbath day. And Paul says, you can observe Romans 14. You can observe any day you want, but you can't be made righteous by a day. It's a work. And then how about food laws? Anybody know any religious groups that observe food laws? They meet on the seventh day. When do you read your Bible? Nobody reads the Bible, but if you went over and read Timothy, St. Paul said to him, you observe days and months and moons and certain foods to be avoided and celibacy. Who hath, who hath bewitched you? This is a doctrine of demons. That's a clear scripture, folks. This is a doctrine of demons. It didn't come from God. God didn't tell you to celebrate the Sabbath. God didn't tell you you can't eat pork. Now, a doctor will tell you if you eat pork, it's unhealthy. It is, but it's not unrighteous. Well, you might die five years before you should because you ate too much pork, but you didn't die unrighteous. You just died because you got too much fat in your blood. Do you, do you see the difference? And look what we've done to priests, teaching celibacy as a doctrine. No, you don't get married because you're in a dangerous occupation or you didn't find anybody you want to live with. But he says to teach celibacy, mandated, is a doctrine of demons. Wow, how you miss that? How do people miss that? We just walk to church and we don't read and we don't think and it's dangerous. And I'm trying to show you your redemption, your righteousness, your right standing with God is predicated on nothing that you do, but what He did. That's it. That's it. I got a pass. I got a free pass. What gives you the right to be a son of God, to be accepted in the beloved, to go to heaven, not to be judged for your own sin? The blood of Jesus. 
the blood of Jesus. That's it. That's all I got. That's it. And every one of the apostles shouts down all this work we do and brag on thinking it makes us holy. Now, it may be good for you. It may be a right thing to do, but it won't make you holy. The blood of Jesus, His life. He who knew no sin became sin for me, that I through His… You did. I was looking for you to help me. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So he took my place. He just took off my filthy robes, my rags. God says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. All your good works are as filthy rags. That word in the Hebrew is menstrual rags. He's trying to get you appalled that there's just nothing you can offer God because you're a sinner. But his son can offer, he's sinless. So the son of eternal God offers his own blood. I I, I think, how sad that all these other religions in the world, their God, little g, has never died for them, has never shown mercy. Blow yourself up with a a suicide pact. Yeah, that'll get you into paradise. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, right. I'm from Washington, and I'm telling the truth. Yeah, right. (laughs) Or if I get on a carpet and I put it towards Mecca, and I was on a plane this past month in an Asian country, and they do so many prayers so many times a day towards Mecca, and they have to be sure with the pilot's navigation they know which way that rug. Others are counting beads. Others are doing so many Hail Marys. Others are paying penances. Everybody's got their gig going. But only Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, comes down and says, I'm going to do what you can't do, and I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to die for you. You don't have to die for me. I can't accept that. So I accept the blood of my son Jesus as a finished work. It's a lot less stressful. That's why it was called good news. That's why the publicans and sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes flock to Jesus. That's why they stay away like we've got AIDS from church today. We're not preaching good news. We're preaching guilt, shame, and condemnation. And all Jesus preached was good news. On your worst day, good news. It's finished. The price has been paid. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. And when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, the sun turned black, the rock split, the earth trembled. It was like the entire earth went into convulsions, understanding the importance of that moment. Then three days later, Jesus is resurrected from the dead with power. The grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't bind him. He was the Son of God. He proved he was alive by appearing to over 500 disciples at one time. He remained on earth teaching for 40 days. Then he ascended to the Father where he rules and reigns. And now he extends his nail-pierced, blood-stained hands to us. And he says, hey, summit. Hey, people of the world, are there any guilty parties who would like to go free? I've paid your price. I've shed blood for the forgiveness of your sin. And when you accept Jesus, you are reckoned, or accounting word, you are accounted on the ledger as being in Christ. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. If you're in Christ, when He died, you died. When He was tortured and tormented and judged for the sin of the world, you were. See, the wages of sin is death. So when He died, God accounts me as a believer to have died when He died. 
payment's been paid. When He rose from the dead, I rose in newness of life, what we symbolize in water baptism after this service. See, everything that happened to Him happened to me because God picks me up and counts me as being in Christ. And when He rose and He had victory, I got victory. I didn't earn it. He did. But God grants to me, like all the human race was in Adam. Adam's walking around with seed in his body of the whole human race. And when he sinned, I sinned. Well, Rick, I wasn't even there. Oh, yeah, you were. You just hadn't been born yet. And he carried the whole human race into sin, passing sin on to all of us. So when I get in Jesus, out of Adam into Jesus, by faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross, God says, well, when Jesus died, you died. When He was beaten and tortured and His blood shed, your blood was shed. And when He was buried, you were buried. And when He rose, you arose. Beautiful. Beautiful. And so God offers that good news to everybody today. You've been given a provision of escape through the shed blood of an innocent third party. You do not have to pay for your sins. And Christians should never be saying, well, God's judging you, brother. God judged you, brother, in Jesus. God does use the word chastise. That's like a spanking, but that's not judgment. Judgment is eternal hell and separation from God. I'll never be judged in my whole life. I was judged in Christ. That make sense? Isn't that great news? Last thought. What happened at the cross? I shared this Friday night. God made a divine exchange at the cross. And here they are. I jotted them down out of memory. Jesus was punished for our iniquity that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. By His stripes we are healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with His righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus tasted death for us so that we might share His life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. All the blessings of Abraham are mine in Christ. I'm not even Jewish. I have no ancestry to Abraham biologically, but I do spiritually. So St. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, if you are in Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs to all of the promises of God. They're mine in Christ. I'm the seed of Abraham. This was spiritual. If curses run in your family, divorce, drug addiction, unemployment, cancer, premature death, I have the power and right as a believer to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I break that curse of suicide, of unemployment, of divorce. It has no place in my life forever. I am blessed with faithful Abraham, and I will pass blessing on to my children and my children's children to a a thousand generations. Jesus endured our poverty that we might share His abundance. He who was rich became poor that we through His poverty might be made wealthy. You ought to quote these. Get your mind renewed. Jesus endured our shame that we might share His glory. Ever been shameful? He took that at the cross. I don't have to be ashamed again. And last, Jesus endured our rejection. My God, my God, why have Thou forsaken me? that we might have His acceptance. See, so does believing this make me a Christian? If an Israelite 
had told Moses that he believed shedding the blood of an innocent lamb and putting it on the doorpost of his home would spare him from the death angel, but he didn't actually do it, he would die. The Bible says the demons believe in God and tremble. They're not atheists. So you can have an intellectual understanding of everything that's just been said, but if you haven't personally applied the blood of Jesus to your own heart and life, it hasn't availed you at all. That's why Jesus beckoned people not just to understand intellectually, but to make a choice. Call on me, I will answer. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I was raised in the deep south. The culture of the south was Christian. We weren't all Christian, but the culture was. Everybody knew Jesus died. Everybody went to church, but everybody wasn't a Christian. Make sense? It was the culture. So intellectually, I never doubted Jesus died for me, that He was the Son of God, that He rose from the dead. If you'd have said, Rick, do you believe that? On my most wicked day in a rock and roll band, I would have said, absolutely believe that. I'll fight you over that. But I wasn't a Christian. But it was nearly 30 years of age when somebody sat across from me at a dinner table and said, have you ever personally asked Jesus to be your Savior? And I said, well, I believe that, but I don't know. He said, wouldn't you like to be sure? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I'm not stupid, yeah. He said, and said, well, then let's pray together. And he just led me in a real simple prayer like I do here every single week to invite Jesus and that gift of eternal life to be mine personally. See, intellectually, you can believe a lot of things and never do it. You can believe adultery is wrong, still go do it. Boy, the crowd got silent on that one, didn't it? (laughs) So you say, Lord Jesus, I know you are the Savior of the world, but today, be my Savior. And that's the prayer he'll always answer. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.